Okay, so we'll start in Daniel 2. Uh, warning, if you're flicking through today, we're going to be going to lots of different passages. But we're going to start in Daniel 2, as that is where we left off. And as we look at the end of Daniel 2, we saw last time that Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to a place of faith, but it's not saving faith. He comes to a place where he acknowledges truths about God but they are not sufficient for him to be saved. And we paralleled that last time with the story in John 3 of of, um, Nicodemus. Um, Two men, both with long names beginning with N, both of whom uh, had uh, a degree of faith. They believed in God. Nebuchadnezzar is clear that God is, is real. He says, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries in verse 47. And so he, he clearly believes and Nicodemus said, you couldn't do what you do, Jesus, unless you were sent from God. So he clearly believes as well. But both of them do not have saving faith. Nicodemus is clearly told, you must be born again and... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has to go through a similar process as well. But where we ended is that because of the acknowledgement of who God is, in verse 48, the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel, at the end of chapter 1, he's the star pupil and he, he aces his test and before Nebuchadnezzar, and he's found to be more knowledgeable even than those who have gone before him, those who have been in the king's service for years. But then in chapter 2, because he's a new kid on the block, so to speak, he doesn't come before the king initially when the king has a dream he wants interpreted. But he saves the day here in chapter 2, and so now at the end of it, Daniel is... Freshly out of the University of Babylon, fresh from him sort of completing his training, he is immediately given the highest possible positions below the king. And there are two things he's given here. Number one, he has specific responsibility over the the geographical area of Babylon. Remember, Babylonia is a huge area. It's covering. They've conquered a, a huge amount of lands. But the capital there, the main area where they originated from, Daniel is going to have authority over that geographic region. And secondly, and this is where it's crucial, he is given specific leadership and responsibility over the wise men of Babylon. And that's the second time we've had this phrase, and we've seen individually that they're called magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans and, and sorcerers and all these various words. And if we take all the different English translations, we could probably add a few more words. But um, together, they are known as simply the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel is now in charge of them. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. And let's start to see how this leads us uh, 
into Christmas. Matthew chapter 2. Now in Matthew's gospel, we have variations from the birth accounts in Luke's gospel. And uh, one of them is what we're going to see here before us. So let's just read about the wise men in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going down into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, Matthew chapter 2. It's that awkward time of year where we have to expose all the myths and, and wrong thinking that goes on amongst many Christians and churches. Notice here many different things that you do not see in this text and things you do see in this text that you don't see in nativity scenes. Firstly, they didn't show up and they weren't told, oh, meet the shepherds, because the shepherds weren't there. The time that the star arose seems to be the time that he was born and they came from the east. Doesn't mean they came from the east side of town. It weren't just from a different hood, so to speak. But they came from way, way over in the east. That's, that's west to you, I'll do it your way. East over here. They came from way, way over and they couldn't come directly because there's this huge desert area. So they have to go right the way round. And the journey would have taken them over a year. Shepherds are long since gone. So they, are, they arrive, and, and, and there are so many questions that come from this. Star? What star? Why do they come? Wise men from the east? Where is the east? Who are they? Why have they come? How do they know about a king? There's so much going on. And so many of the answers are found in the book of Daniel. And because we've just been, got up to chapter 2, I thought with it Christmas as well, it was a good time to resolve some of these things. So we're not going to teach all of Matthew 2, but I just want you to notice a few things. Firstly, right at the beginning, in the days of Herod the king, let me say it again, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
Because when we saw, his, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, Herod the king heard this. And then as we go on, when he finds out that he was born in Bethlehem, and they quote from the book of Micah, we're told that from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's so, it's, it's ironic to me that one of the key ideas in Matthew 2 is the concept of kings. Herod is a king, right? But there is one who is coming who is a king, and these guys have come to worship the king. So there is this, this conflict between kings. Herod the king and the king of the Jews. Herod thought he was king of the Jews, but no, 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 there's another king of the Jews. But the irony is, is notice the one group of people that aren't kings are the wise men. And yet we three kings of Orient are. They're the only people in the text that aren't kings at this point. The the idea of kings is crucial, but they are not kings. They are wise men. Many versions will say magi. And the wise men from the east we know because we've just read about them in Daniel chapter 2. There were various schools of magicians, of conjurers. They were people who were the equivalent of the Jewish priests and the Jewish scribes, as we've seen several times over the last few weeks. And they all taught this Babylonian mishmash of religion and astrology and occult. Why on earth would these people of these weird belief systems come to worship the king of the Jews? How would they know to come? That's because Daniel was put in charge of them. Daniel was placed in charge of an entire system of religious thinking and practice... And he was placed in charge. And as such, Daniel is the one that led them to understand that there was a king that was coming. Because we've just seen in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar is told, you, O king, are ahead of gold. But there's another king coming that's silver. And then there's a kingdom of bronze. And then there's the iron and the iron and clay. But at the end of it all, there is a stone who is coming. And he will come and destroy all the previous kingdoms. And then this mountain will come up and it will fill the whole earth. Of all the kings, he's the important one. And here is the king. And so this connection has come about because of Daniel. Now we have Babylonian astrologers who've come to worship the true king. And there is so much that is known about this one who is coming. There are a few questions I want to address this morning. Question number one is how much was known about the coming king? And I keep emphasizing that word king. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be crucial. How much is known about the coming king? And how much did the Babylonian astrologers know about the coming king? Now, we we understand that so much of what they know has come from Daniel. But how did Daniel know what he knew as well? So we're going to spend some of our time today, and we're going to spend some time next week, and quite possibly, potentially, the week after as well, we're going to spend a little bit of time going through the things that were known about the king who was to come. We're going to talk about the things that were known about the king who was to come, which is why I asked Brian to start us today reading in Genesis 3. So why don't we turn to Genesis chapter 3. 
one of the frustrations um, this morning is going to be dealing with lots of passages I want to deal with in depth very, very briefly and quickly. But we, we need to take what we can and progress through. Because if I were to go through every passage that we could in depth, we'd be doing a series for a year. So let's just go nice and steadily and and work our way through. Genesis chapter 3, one of the most important and foundational chapters in the entire Bible. Absolutely crucial that we understand it. You see echoes and allusions to Genesis 3 throughout all of the rest of the Bible. And we'll see, hopefully, if we have time, we'll, we'll come back to this at the end. Now, we, we know, I think, the basic story. Um, there, there is the, the tempting by the serpent. He says what pretty much every false teacher has said since, which is, did God really say that? If you can sum up the mission of our church in a single statement, it would be, yes, he did. And that's the question, and that's what leads to sin. And when we have God dealing with this sin, there is this statement that God makes, this curse that God makes to the serpent in chapter 3 and verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, and and, and just one little thing in passing, um, regulars will know this, but just in case you don't, um, this is not a snake with legs. This isn't an Aesop's fable telling you the origin of snakes. Hey, they used to be serpents, and then, then one of them did something really bad, and God took away his legs and said, you've got to go and dust. That's not the case at all. The angelic realm has a lot of strange beings. And one of those beings was seraphim, that would often have the appearance of a fiery serpent. Eden is a place where heaven and earth met. This is an angelic being that is in the form of a serpent. And the seraphim, as we saw in our studies years ago in Isaiah 6, had a specific duty to protect the holiness of God. This one is not going to do that. So, he says to that serpent, that angelic being, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I think one of the reasons that people think that the serpent is just an animal of some sort, just another creature as opposed to angelic being, is because of this expression. You're now cursed above all livestock. It's like, oh, you're, you're now the worst of the animals. The background to this is, is, is a lot more complex. We won't go fully into it today. But I want you to understand this. That the conflict between Satan and mankind is because Satan is jealous of the priority that God has given to mankind. And specifically, Satan is jealous that the man has, mankind has been given authority and dominion over the earth. He wanted that. And now mankind has been given this responsibility... And so not only is Satan going to be put down to the earth, that's the dust like man, but he's going to be lower in God's eyes than the livestock upon the earth that man has dominion over. That's the curse. So you shall go on your belly, you shall go in dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. That is the him being cast out from the presence of God onto the earth. And that's why when he shows up in the book of Job and, and, and God says... Uh, So Satan, where have you been? He said, 
I've been on the earth. It's kind, it's kind of like when you lock some, if you're, if you're a, if you're a, a police officer and you arrest someone and you, 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 they get put into prison after a trial and what have you. And then, uh, one day they're allowed, you know, to go before the judge again. And the police officer says, ah, oh, you, I remember you. Where have you been again? I've been in jail. God knows he's been on the earth because here, with the dust, God is condemning him to the earth. He's being cast out of heaven. I told you I'd get distracted. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, this is the crucial bit. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, uh, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we have here in this verse this crucial concept that the woman will have a seed or an offspring. Now you have to understand contextually, Satan's plan here was to kill mankind. That was a fairly simple thing to do for two reasons. Firstly, there's only two of them. If you're going to wipe out mankind, this is your best time to do it, right? There's only two of them. Secondly... God has specifically said to those two people, if you eat from this fruit, you're going to die. So now you've got a really simple task. You want to get rid of mankind because they've taken your job. So the way to get rid of them is very simple. You simply get them to do the one thing that God has has told them not to do, and then they'll be dead because God said that will be the case. That's it. And that's what's going on in chapter 3. So... They are going to die. God was right. Their sin will bring about death, not just for them, but for the entirety of mankind. But that death is not immediate. And so, before they die, they're going to be able to have offspring. This is surprise number one for Satan. That the death is not immediate. He presumed it would be, and it isn't. And so the woman will have a seed. Now the strange thing from a Jewish perspective, reading back on the book of Genesis, is this whole thing about the seed of the woman and the emphasis upon the woman. The way that that descendancy was regarded by the Jewish people was always through the man. If your father was a Jew, you were a Jew. If If your mother was a Jew but your father was a Gentile, you weren't considered a Jew. Timothy in the New Testament being a good example of that. So so we have a situation here where an emphasis is put on the seed of the woman rather than the man. And there is at the very least, I think, a hint of the virgin birth there. But there will be an offspring that comes from the woman, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There are two wounds, one to the head and one to the heel. The heel wound is not permanent. The head's wound is. That's the distinction between them. And so there will be harm done to the seed of the woman, but the wound that he inflicts will be permanent. It will be to the head. And when you go through right the rest of the Bible now, and you see crushing of heads, you see enemies' heads being crushed, and you see references to heads and crushing and and, and what have you, You're alluding back to Genesis 3. This is absolutely foundational. That from the woman will come an offspring, and that offspring will be the means of redemption for mankind. Because Satan, who brought in sin and death, 
will be destroyed by the seed of the woman. Their hope, right from the start, is in a promised offspring. Right? And all we know at this point is that it's going to come from the woman. Now, I don't know exactly what Eve's theology was and how much she knew, but it is fascinating that in chapter 4, if you just look ahead a little bit, Adam knew his wife, I think you all know what that means, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, what's fascinating here is that the words with the help of aren't there in the original. It literally says, I've gotten a man, Lord, Yahweh, name of God. You see exactly the same expression elsewhere. If someone has a child, like like Noah's born, have a child, Noah. I've gotten a child, Noah. Well, who's the child? It's Noah. If if you take this verse in chapter 4 at face value, Eve seems to be saying, I've gotten a man, Yahweh. It's at least possible that Eve thought that this child was God incarnate. At the very least, she certainly thought that the firstborn child was the offspring that was going to save the world. But that wasn't to be. But there is certainly a lot of understanding that is going on there. Perhaps Eve understood that only God would be able to to save the world and that the one who would save would have to be God. But as we go forwards, let's stay in the book of Genesis and let's move forward a little bit. God um, gives aside the other nations. He raises up his own nation and he calls Abraham. And there's so many passages I could look at here, but let's do chapter 22. Abraham has been promised that he'll be the father of a great nation. And it is after the sacrifice, or almost sacrifice, of Isaac that, um, if I pick up in verse 15 of Genesis 22, the angel of Yahweh called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so now there is this promise of the blessing of the whole earth through the offspring of Abraham. Abraham who thought he's wrestling with this faith issue. Will God give me a son? Will God not give me a son? He finally gets the right son and then he has to sacrifice the son. And he goes through this whole faith journey. And then God just reassures him at the end that this is the one who will possess the gates of his enemies. This is the one through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There will be a descendant that will come from Eve. He will be man. Maybe he'll be God as well. Maybe Eve was trying to understand that at that point. But he'll certainly be man. Now we know specifically he's going to come through the line of the Jews. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And, and Abraham had, had other children and other descendants. We know about Ishmael and what have you. So the promise is reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, 
we to go to Genesis 49. The end of the book of Genesis, Jacob blesses his sons in Egypt. And he goes through the blessings of his sons. If you're turning there, chapter 49. Starts off with the firstborn Reuben, Simeon and Levi. And then when we come to Judah in verse 8. And this is becoming fairly typical that the firstborn, you know, is not the one. Wasn't with Reuben, wasn't before with um, Esau. And uh, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And this is the crucial bit. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The various tribes are given prophecies through Jacob, the father of the, of the sons who would father these tribes. And the prophecy of Judah is that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter is what the king had that, so that he would rule. That's more emphatic as you go down, or at least easier for us to understand. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then it says until until tribute comes to him. Some versions here translate, well, don't translate the word Shiloh and just put Shiloh as if that's the name of the Messiah. But it literally means until he comes whose right it is. In, in other words, the rulers of Israel will come from Judah until such time as the one who has the real right to rule will come. So there is now this, this promise of the one who's coming. We know he's going to come through mankind. We know he's going to come through Abraham. And now Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He's going to come through the tribe of Judah because the, the ruler who is going to come, the one who's going to be king, is going to come from the tribe of Judah. So the one who's going to come is going to be a king. He's going to rule. And he's going to rule over all, and he'll have dominion over all nations, and he's going to come through the Jewish people, and specifically through the tribe of Judah. And we've got all of that just from the first book of the Bible. Just from the first book. There is going to be a king. And he, a king from the tribe of Judah. And, and, and the Jewish kings did come from the tribe of Judah. That was said, and that happened. And then we go a little bit further on. And there's other prophecies, there's other prophecies as we go through. But let's look at the book of, well actually let's stick with the king, we'll come back to numbers. Let's stick with the king. Let's go to First Samuel, no Second Samuel, sorry. Second Samuel. This is a passage I've taught a few times here um, in midweeks, and we've never recorded it. And I, and I really want you to understand the next two passages because they're really quite crucial. Second Samuel 7. God uh, sends the prophet Nathan to David, and he, he gives him a prophecy. And I'm going to pick up in verse 10. 
I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. So there's a time coming when Israel will be at peace, when everything is done. And then he says, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me for, uh, made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Okay, now this is crucial, so pay attention to this. We've got the line of the Messiah, he's going to be a man, he's going to be a Jew, he's going to go through the tribe of Judah. Now we're told that the kingdom of David, from the house of David, a particular family within the tribe of Judah, that this kingdom will live, this throne will exist forever. So the coming king is going to come not just through mankind, not just through Abraham, not just through the Jews, not just through Judah, but through the house, the family of David. Now, when he says this to him here, and, and, I, and I need you to kind of almost, if you've learned some of this stuff before, almost to forget what you've learned. If you take this at face value, he's talking about Solomon. And that's very, very clear. He's talking about Solomon for several reasons. Firstly, he says that, that this one, this offspring will come, and it says specifically, from your own body. He will... And secondly, he shall come from your own body, that's verse 12. Secondly, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. We know that Solomon, because of the sin of David, was the one who bought, who built the temple. And then in verse 14, when he commits iniquity, and boy did Solomon do that, he will be disciplined, but the steadfast love will not depart from him as it did from Saul. God will forgive him for his sin. So because it's from his own body, because it's the one who builds the temple, and because it is the, um, it is the, uh, the, the sin that Solomon is going to commit is prophesied as well, there's no reason to read this passage and to think he's talking about anybody other than Solomon. I know you want to see Jesus there. I hear you. But he seems to be talking about Solomon. Now let's turn to 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17 is in many senses a parallel passage. In, in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet goes to David and makes prophecies concerning the house of David, the kingdom of David, the throne of David, and he makes these prophecies and he talks about his son, his offspring. Now, in First Chronicles 17, Nathan is going to come to David, and he's going to talk to David in prophetic terms about what's going to happen. And a lot of it, a huge amount of it, is very, very similar. In fact, in many cases, identical. 
Let me pick up again from verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time they are appointed judges over my people Israel. It's almost identical. Israel will have this time of peace when they have their new king. I will subdue all of your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. You can see all these parallels. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So, so far, everything is identical to the second Samuel passage. We are again talking about an offspring. But here's the first difference. The expression from your own body... Solomon being the immediate descendant of David, isn't here. It's missing. So we're talking about an offspring, but there's a difference in what is being said here. He doesn't use the phrase, from your own body. Um, He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Exactly the same expression. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. Now do you see the other main omission? He's not going to take his steadfast love from him. That's the same. But previously with Solomon, the reason that the steadfast love might be removed is because Solomon sinned and he had to be disciplined. But this offspring, not from his own body, does not need to be disciplined because there's no mention of any sin. And yet there is still a throne that will exist forever. Now we've dealt with this as we go through the Psalms. And as I'm talking now to save time, you could be turning to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2. But I need you to understand this. Nathan has said, you're going to have a son. He's going to come from your own body. He's going to build the temple for me. Right? And he's going to sin and he's going to have to be punished for his sin, but I'm not going to depart from him. And so the throne will stay in your family forever. And then Nathan comes again and says almost exactly the same expressions to talk about an offspring that is clearly a different offspring because he is not from his own body and he doesn't sin. But there are other things are completely parallel because he is going to be Another one who has a throne that lasts forever. The Davidic throne will last forever. Not that Solomon has an eternal reign, but the Davidic throne has an eternal reign. There will become another offspring that will have an eternal reign. And that is why when we come to the book of Psalms, right the way through the book of Psalms, from beginning to end, there is this constant parallel between David, God's anointed king, and the descendant of David, God's anointed king, who will be the ultimate anointed king. And the Psalms, right the way through, has these two things, on the basis of Second Samuel and First Chronicles, has these two king, kings, two types of kings, a fallen human king who sins from the house of David, initially David, then Solomon, and so on, And then the eternal sinless king who is also from the house of David. Right? And these run parallel right the way through the Psalms. And so in Psalm 2, we have this. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings, keyword, of the earth set themselves together. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Two distinct individuals, Yahweh and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. That is the clarion cry of our generation and every generation before us and every generation that will be after us. People saying, we don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want to be bound by his rules. We don't want to be tied up by the things he says we must and mustn't do. Can't we just change this here? And can't we just adjust that here? This is the 21st century, folks. You say that you're not supposed to do that. But did God really say that? That's that's the, always been the case and always will be the case. And so the people are against God and his anointed king. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. And this is what he says that's going to terrify them. He says this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See the parallel with Matthew 2? There are kings who come against Yahweh, his anointed one. And the response is, I have a king. It's the clash between the kings. I will tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see that the king is also the son, just like in First Chronicles 17. The one who is the son, the offspring the, from the family of David, is also the king, and he's also the son of God. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. We just read that in Genesis 22 and verse 18. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You must bow before the anointed king whose throne never ends. Now you see how we're progressively going through Old Testament scripture and we're getting more and more information, not just of the genealogy of the promised king, but about what he will do. All nations will be under him. Everybody will have to submit to him. He will be the ultimate ruler. His kingdom will exist forever. These are all things that were known by the Jews and therefore were known by Daniel. And I could probably turn to about... 50 different psalms and make my point but let's just turn to one more psalm 110 psalm 110 the lord that's yahweh says to my lord adonai sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool. You know, we have feet and enemies under feet. Where have we read about that today so far? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is the fulfillment of it. So Yahweh says to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There will come a point when Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. The Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. 
Genesis chapter 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Priests in the Old Testament had to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. But there is a time coming when the priest will be in the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. So the emphasis here is that the one who is David's Lord will eventually fulfill Genesis 3.15, and he will be God's king. He will also be a priest, and if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 18, he will also be a prophet after Moses. He will be prophet, priest, and king. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. And he therefore will lift up his head. There are so many allusions there to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. But the one I want you to note is simply this. That again, it is the kings who will be crushed and who will be shattered by God's king, David's Lord. And so we have an incredible picture of kingship. That there is this one who is coming, who's going to be God's anointed king, and that David has just taken all of this prophecy concerning the kingship of the one that we call the Messiah, and he's taken it to the Babylonians and said, and this is the last king that's going to come, and he's going to destroy all the other kings, and a residue of all the other kings, and his kingdom will last forever. All of this is part of the progressive ever-developing revelation that comes to us bit by bit through the Old Testament. But there's one last passage we're going to look at today concerning prophecies of the coming king. And that's in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. Go back to uh, your first five books, your Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Numbers 24. Balaam's a funny old chap. He's a, a Babylonian. He's a guy who is, is part of that wise men class. And basically, if you want somebody cursed, go get Balaam to curse them. Because those he blesses are blessed and those he curses are cursed. That was his reputation. And so Balaam is hired to curse Israel. But each time he tries to do so, God takes control of his mouth and he ends up blessing Israel instead. And there's some incredible messianic details uh, from the, the oracles of Balaam. I want to simply look... Oh, I could get distracted. Now, let's just stick to the last one. So I'm going to look at chapter 24 and verse 15. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I want you to note lots of things in that intro that are of interest. We have a Babylonian guy here from the wise men class, and we have references to his eyes being opened, uncovered, to the knowledge that God has, and we have reference to a vision. All the themes that are picked up in Daniel chapter 2. Those of you who've done that the last few weeks, you'll be familiar with those words. I see him, verse 17, but not now. 
So I can see, I can see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. So he's seeing something that's not yet. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, that word again, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the foreheads of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob will exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. There's one who is coming who is going to crush the forehead of his enemies. Ring any bells? Genesis 3.15, right? This is the promised Messiah. This is the seed of the woman who's also going to be the seed of Abraham, also going to be the seed of Judah, also going to be the seed of David. This is the one made very clear by the allusion to Genesis 3.15. He is a scepter that will rise out of Israel. That's a reference back to Genesis 49 and the prophecy to Judah. He will be a king. But notice what else? A star will come out of Jacob. This is the one passage that speaks of the kingship, the anointed king who is coming, that we call Messiah, but it's really emphasized that he's a king. It's the one passage that says he has a star. And that prophecy was given to a Babylonian wise man. So now if we go back to Matthew chapter 2, and we go back to where we began, so to speak, what we see is this. Is we see a bunch of, of wise men, magi, Babylonian astrologers, who have come to Israel because they saw a star rise, and they've come to worship him. Why would Babylonian astrologers come and worship a Jewish king? Because Daniel was teaching them to do that. And he, ha- he oversaw a school for about 70 years where all he wanted to do was to teach them to worship the, the king that was coming. Where there was this story how historically he had saved the Magi. He'd saved the, all of the wise men who were about to be torn limb from limb. He saved them all by telling Nebuchadnezzar what dream he'd had and then interpreting it. And what dream was that? That was the dream when there was a coming king whose kingdom would take over the whole earth. And so that king, his coming kingdom would be associated with a star and they see a star and they come. And they come to worship. And when you see Numbers 24, when you see the prophecies concerning the king, you understand Daniel knew a king was coming. He spoke of the coming king in his kingdom. And even they, prior to Daniel, had stuff in their records about a Jewish king being associated with a star. Now it's all starting to come together. So what did they do? Did they look up at the sky for 700 years? No, no, no. They knew when he was coming. But that's Daniel 9. We'll talk a little bit about it next time. And we'll go back to Matthew 2 next time. And we'll look a little bit more about what they knew about this king next time. As we come to celebrate Christmas and the coming of the king, we will go through some more what they knew about this king who was to come. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your eternal king has come. Not yet to establish the kingdom on the earth, but yet he has come to bring righteousness. He has come to save us from our sin. And Father, we want to be able to embrace him, to kiss the Son, lest we perish in his wrath. And so as we come together now and we take communion as a body, may we have our eyes firmly on that King who has saved us from our sins. Amen. 